Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Marco Greenberg, co-founder and president of Thunder 11, a New York City-based strategic communications firm, and most importantly, the author of Primitive. And we're gonna be spending most of our conversation talking about his new book, though not exclusively talking about his new book. So Marco, great to have you on The Deep Dive. Bill, great to be on The Deep Dive. Now, I'm gonna take a, a quick second before I get into the first question, and I'm gonna also read the subtitle of the book because it's kind of long and I didn't want to break it up in the intro, but I think it's important to set a little bit of the stage there. So like I mentioned, the book is called Primitive and the subtitle of that is Tapping the Primal Drive that Powers the World's Most Successful People. So as I was going through the book, I was struck with a couple of things and I want to give you the opportunity to do first, which is to kind of set up why you chose this idea of primitive and primal to kind of set the stage for talking to all these amazing people that you interviewed? Great question. And kudos to you for reading the book. Not everyone <laughs> reads these days and does their homework, but you do, Phil. So that's a great thing. Originally, I was going to tap into my expertise on the marketing and PR front and had ideas, how do you get it out there in a crowded space, et cetera, et cetera. And rightfully, my agent said, hey, that's been done. He said, instead, I want you to think hard about all the people that you've worked with, whether they be Fortune 500 CEOs, whether they be founders of Unicorn, tech stars, whether they be mad scientists, whether they be creative artists, what do they have in common? And I sat there on my couch in my office on the Upper West Side. And the first thing that came to mind is, they're fucking nuts. <laughs> they're crazy. The good kind of crazy, right? Yeah. They're impulsive. They're spontaneous. They're extemporaneous. They're doing things that they, quote, shouldn't do, that they're not supposed to do. And so that led us into a path that was much deeper and broader than we originally anticipated. And the book is a little bit self-help, a little bit business, a little bit career with some memoir sprinkled in. Yeah, I noted that immediately upon going through it, that there was a, a very personal perspective that runs through the book. And I do want to get to that toward the back end of this, because I want to go through some of the major points first, but I specifically do want to address some of the vulnerabilities and the openness of some of the stories that you shared in the book. So for those who eventually will go out and, and get the book and read through the book, you break down these chapters with this idea of roaming. And obviously roaming, it ties to this sort of hunter-gatherer ethos that kind of runs through the whole book. And it's also actually a working acronym. So you have, and I'm just going to list them very quickly, relentless, oppositional, agnostic, messianic, insecure, nuts, and gallant, right? And nuts came up already that most of these people in your words they're fucking nuts right so what is it about that particular quality that you think links 
all these people together, this idea of having the good part of crazy. Yeah, I think nuts typifies that primal, instinctive, innate, inborn sense that many of us have to march to our own drummer. And a lot of that is beaten out of us. It starts at a very early age when we're on the playground and we're told for the very first time to be nice and play nicely on the playground. It continues when we're in grade school and told to listen to our teacher and essentially regurgitate the information that we've been given. Continues on into high school and college and standardized test scores, et cetera, et cetera. So there's very much an accent on being conventional, falling in line, being a quote unquote good little boy, good little girl. And look, there's a place for that. In this book, we're not arguing for brutish behavior. We're not arguing that people be crude or coarse or certainly not cruel. But we are arguing that they tap into what's really in their gut in terms of what they really want to do. And I think get back to nuts, sometimes that's appearing to be crazy to those who are more quote unquote civilized, right? When you look at some of the behavior of, let's say, an uber primitive like Elon Musk or Mark Benioff, who we also talk about in our book from Salesforce, or Oprah Winfrey or Ariana Huffington, some of the moves that they make for others seem so full of risk, so audacious, so off the wall that it's hard for society to digest that. But I would point out that those are the kind of moves and the kind of mentality that we need to make really significant strides. And we have a society, and this could be changing in the wake of COVID-19, that has long been focused on credentials, right? You have great credentials, Phil, you know, from Goldman to Duke, et cetera, et cetera. I have some decent credentials, but I think the point that this book is making is not really about the credentials. It's about your mindset. And part of the key to the winning mindset, I believe, is tapping into that primal energy, that primal thinking. And a lot of it starts with being willing to be eccentric, being willing to be a little bit weird, right? You know, Tony from Zappos literally gives people a test before they come to Zappos of how strange are you? He sees weirdness, strangeness being out there as a strength. Unfortunately, in most corporate situations or even in small businesses or nonprofit organizations, being weird is sometimes seen as not being a team player, not being the right, quote, cultural fit. So very much so, the, the good kind of crazy plays a pivotal role. And I think it's, it's important to make those kind of distinctions because I was often like whipsawed when I was reading the book because as I do think that risk and the profile for risk is is very important, obviously, right? You, you did mention um, Goldman Sachs, I was a trader. I, un, trading is all about making decisions with imperfect and uncertain information. It's a tool of managing risk when done well, you know, as opposed to taking big bets as it's, seems more dramatic like that on TV, but on the day-to-day -day of doing the job, it's much more about assessing risk and managing risk. And I wonder if some of these ideas 
are often not evenly distributed in the sense that the past has been about credentials, but credentials, particularly in moment of crisis, like we are right now, you mentioned COVID-19, it would seem like we need more of that, right? Like we need experts. We need those who are deeply credentialed rather than those who are just sharing their opinion, right? So how do you differentiate between those two things to open up where we have more dialogue, but also leaning into those who might have maybe a little bit more credibility in a particular area than than others? Yeah, there's a yin-yang here. There are two forces that I've seen, and, and a lot of times, and you've seen this in business too, Phil, people talk about you're either corporate or you're an entrepreneur. You're extrovert, you're introvert. You're right brain, you're left brain. You're a morning person, you're a night person. <laughs> so yes, we are a new grouping, if you will. Yeah. And a lot of people that have read the book have said, well, one's kind of a hunter, the other's more of a farmer. So the hunter is certainly the primitive. The farmer, which came after hunting, is certainly more civilized. I think to answer your question specifically, they need not be mutually exclusive. In other words, in my view, the pendulum has swung too far out oftentimes to the civilized side, those who are worshiping process, those who are more conventional, those who are using the quote unquote civilized playbook. But there's room for those who are more spontaneous, who bring a different flavor, who bring some original thinking, who don't ignore the data. They look at the data, but then they use the data to make very quick decisions. There's analysis paralysis out there. You've been on enough corporate conference calls to know my 19-year-old son, who uh, is off to college next uh, September, hopefully if, if school is happening, yeah. is listening in on a conference call with the client. And of course, he's under NDA, quote unquote. He's not going to say anything, but he was amazed and constantly amazed about how a conversation basically yields almost nothing. Everyone is agreeing with everyone else. It's an echo chamber. No one wants to offend. No one wants to show true diversity of thought. We want to just fall in line and say, hey, great point. That's perfect. I just want to echo what Chris said or what Bob said or what Sue said, et cetera, et cetera. So back to COVID-19, you're damn right we need the experts. And I think Fauci is a hero. I'll just share my politics there. But I think you also need to couple that with people who bring a different mindset, who do practice some of the principles that we talk in primitive on the roaming front. And who also aren't just nuts, but let's take another one that you probably read. I'm curious, you're thinking of it, or agnostic. And we don't necessarily mean from a religious point of view. We mean more for, like, do I use a Mac or a PC? Or, you know, in terms of my devices, I could use this device one day. I could use this channel the other day. And I, I think Fauci's a great example, right? He, he's an MD who's an expert in public health. But we also need people like Bill Gates who started a company, both hardware and software, now is a philanthropist, now is very much into the developing world and public health issues. So people that are roaming between fields and fields, rather than just, I am a domain expert, all I do is X. I'm a dermatologist. I am an accountant. I'm a construction engineer, right? I, I think increasingly... And this is a throwback to the old days. 
we do need people that can jump from field to field, job to job. And look, Elon Musk is a great example of that going from the boring company, PayPal, Tesla. I'm not even getting them all and I'm not even getting them all in the right chronology, but the idea stands. And it's interesting, you know, I'm going to skip around because you mentioned agnostic and that's toward the bottom of my sheet. But uh-huh. since you brought it up, I think it's a good, a good way to explore that point a little bit more because one of the things that you're right, I did identify with that chapter or that section rather. And it made me think about this ongoing conversation we see in creative spaces and marketing spaces about specificity versus being a generalist. So I was curious if you if you saw parallels between that conversation, the agnostic conversation and the generalist versus specificist or expert or, or what have you, how that kind of shakes out in your mind. Absolutely. Well, I'll go back three decades little bit more, actually. And my first job in New York City when I was going to graduate school at Columbia University, I was a trainer at the Vertical Club. But this was before Equinox. And it was the hot club at the time. And one of my one-on-one clients was a neurologist. And he took me out to dinner once at Smith & Walensky's that I certainly couldn't afford on my own. And he said, Marco, I'm just going to give you one piece of advice. You must specialize. You must focus in your career have that niche and exploit that niche. Well, he meant it in a very benevolent way, but I and a lot of people have done the opposite of that. And we've been able to benefit from being generalists. There's a book that came out right when I was putting my book to bed and I deliberately didn't read it because I didn't want to clutter my own thinking. and I wanted this author's thoughts to be his thoughts and mine to be my own, yeah. but it's on my, it's on my night shelf now. It's called Range. And it is about celebrating those who are George Plimpton-like, if anyone remembers the writer, who jumped from one area to the other area and literally donned the uniform, in this case of the Detroit Lions, of playing that role. So it's, again, back to that yin-yang and back to the spectrum. There are certain people that I think are built to be specialists, right? They want to go deep. They want to understand every nuance. You see a lot of them in academia. No surprise, academia is also a very civilized environment. And and as you know, I have an acronym for the civilized folks that I call homing. Yeah. They are that to a T, right? It's about producing papers and getting tenure, et cetera, et cetera. That's very much on the opposite end of a primitive who relishes jumping around. But even amongst the primitives and the civilized, on the agnostic front, and I'll just leave with this thought, one of the heroes of the agnostic chapter is one of my favorite writers named Alan Lightman. Now, in addition to being an amazing novelist, guess what? He's also a physicist, has written several textbooks on physics at MIT, no less, and he's also now a social entrepreneur. So to be able to do all of that at once, you know, for Alan, the right brain and the left brain are both on fire. I don't have that ability. I, <laughs> I'm more limited in my uh, intellectual powers, but he can pull it off. And he looks at people that aren't as like, you're missing out. How could you not do this? Why do you want to do physics all day when you can also write for the New York Times? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned range because there's there's definitely something going on with that because in the sense that it's a book that has been mentioned at least three or four times 
over the course of my doing the show. And I've been doing this current show since November. So it's not been that long. So it's, it's been mentioned in my show notes several times. It's now come up again. So those who are, who are regular listeners are going to be like, okay, maybe this is something to check out. So I think from a data point perspective of kind of culture mapping, this is a book that is making a clear stand. And I'm sure three to four months down the road, Primitive is going to be doing the same thing on other people's show in addition to my own. From uh, your lips to God's ears. No, no doubt about it, you know, and I'm going to keep going with the agnostic piece because I, I made notes here that the messianic and the agnostic, and I like using, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent and fan of language and being very specific about, about language. I think it's very important. And I found it really interesting that there are these two terms that are part of your larger acronym but they would seem to be in opposition to one another, you know, just in terms of what they mean in reality, not necessarily in the way you're using them. So I wanted to give you like some space to kind of walk through like why you chose to use the, that language and how you think they support each other rather than oppose one another. Or, or maybe you think they do oppose each other in some ways. Like I just like how they were used. Yes. That's a very astute point, and frankly, I hadn't considered it before, so let me gather my thoughts on that. (laughs) First of all, in terms of messianic, let me just set the stage. Like agnostic, there is some religious connection. Of course, yeah. We we don't necessarily intend it that way, although with messianic, certainly it's looking at your profession, not just as a job, not just as a career, not just as lucrative— but really your calling. Yes, from a divine point of view. Hey, this is why I'm on planet Earth. This is what I think about when I get up in the morning for the first thought that I have. And this is what I think about when I put my head down on that pillow at night. It is your be all and end all purpose. And to go back to what I heard about specializing when I was at Columbia University, right after I graduated, I got another line from a colleague who said, you know, if you want to be successful, forget about specializing. You got to be messianic. And when I heard that term, it felt grandiose. It felt off-putting. It felt totally over the top. But as I've looked through the research, as we did more than 60 interviews, as I reflected on people that I've worked with over my career, these are in fact the people who have taken it to a totally different level. Now, sometimes you're right. Sometimes they do specialize in one niche and are not that agnostic, or at least on the surface. Talk about, for example, Dr. Ali Razai, who is one of the most well-known neuroscientists. He is a neuroscientist. He is a neurosurgeon. However, even with his messianic fervor, and he is one of our uh, poster children, let's say, for the messianic chapter, he jumps around. He wants to use implants to treat addiction. He wants to use implants to treat Alzheimer's. He wants to try to figure out how we can create digital PPE to combat the COVID-19 epidemic. So I would argue, yes, there are times when a messianic character is only about one lane, right? They want to be the best actor they can be, the best writer they can be, the best 
small business owner they can be. But there's another in which the messianic and agnostic intersect. I'll use an example and then I'll turn it over to you. Sean Combs. Now he's known in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different names. And I would argue that he is full on agnostic, whether it is entertainment, whether it is acting, whether it is plays, whether it is liquor companies, whether it is cologne, whether it is fashion, but he's also messianic about everything that he does. And as you know, we have a bit of an anecdote about Sean in the book that was excerpted by, if that's a word, excerpted by Entrepreneur Magazine. Yeah. I'm always going to be down with the shout out for Puff as as a fellow Howard guy. Um, you know, Puffy's been around in my life forever since I was a freshman at school. So, um, and he was a a more senior about to be out of Howard, um, continue to do all the things that he's done. So shout out to Puff, shout out to Howard. And I think Puff is a good example because you mentioned also early in the book, um, I believe you pronounce his name Clays, Michael Clays. Is that correct? Okay. So when I read that excerpt and it's in the intro, I think. Um, where you described this gentleman as someone that you worked with when you had kind of returned back to kind of a corporate gig. And he was a guy that was, you know, embodied this primitive ethics, right? He kind of focused on the job, good at the job, but mercurial in his approach, right? And I think Puff would probably fit into that category. And I was thinking like on a fictional level, um, someone like Don Draper fits into that category, right? He disappeared from, you know, work, went after, right? <laughs> and kind of took these sabbaticals for lack of a, of a better word. And I wondered about what is it about the conditions that these people thrive in that allow that to happen, right? Like clearly there are institutions where that quite simply wouldn't work, right? So what have you found are some sort of, you know, fertile ground that needs to exist in order for those types of personalities to find success? That's a wonderful angle. And it's super important. I I think one of the reasons why I started the book with Michael Clay's, and there are a lot of characters in the book, one could argue maybe too many characters, but Michael for me is a great personification of the fact that you don't have to put a shingle out in order to be a primitive. In other words, when I talk about the concept with a lot of people, they naturally gravitate to startups. Well, that's kind of a startup mentality. You're nimble, you're agile, you're fast moving, you're trusting your gut, et cetera, et cetera. Well, actually can apply to people who are middle-aged, wear a uh, blue suit, white press shirts, blue ties, white red ties, long after business casual has been instituted. And I think the organizations that can embrace these different types of characters, and Michael, as you said, was someone whose office looked like a tornado hit it, who said he wouldn't manage people, who didn't fill out his timesheet. But he had immense value to the organization, in this case, our common employer, Burson Marsteller, at the time the largest PR firm, because he brought in huge whales of clients. So they let him be the free spirit that he is. I I, I would probably 
suggests that had he not brought in those clients, he would not have had that leverage. And younger people who didn't have those kind of wins on their scorecard, so to speak, wouldn't have been allowed to stay. To fast forward, and I didn't talk about this, but Michael was showing the door eventually. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was more of a renegade, more of a rebel, more of a maverick, probably eventually, after a couple decades, rub people the wrong way. So I think any culture that doesn't make room for people like Michael, that doesn't make room for people that are a little off the wall, offbeat, different, is a culture that's not going to thrive in the long run. And, and I just see too much groupthink going on. And, you know, the one part of the research that we point to in the book is that we think that CEOs want us to mimic them and agree with them and are not our heads. Yes. Research shows they actually respect us less when we're yes men and yes women. So a lot of people are, are pursuing that civilized path, not realizing that tapping into a little primitive energy. And here's another part of the acronym, as you know, Phil, oppositional mm-hmm. saying, hey, you know, I don't see it like that. I don't agree. It takes courage to do that. And it's more than just being contrarian. There has to be something deeper behind it. And there's a couple of other, I mean, like you said, there's lots of people mentioned in the book, um, some workable examples, both personal and also more sort of just in the world, in the ethos, folks you interviewed. And what I was curious about, and I'm, I'm just picking these two examples because I think they're obvious examples um, of, you know, Steve Jobs is mentioned in the book. I don't need to explain who Steve Jobs is to anybody who's listening to this. Then obviously the founder of Uber. Travis Kalnachik is mentioned in the book and, you know, lots to say about their business. I think jobs more than Travis, but there's a lot of good business, not really great people, right? I think particularly Travis was able to do what he did because there just wasn't a lot of oversight. This idea of move fast, break things, which is a more of a Facebook thing, but I think it's become the driving energy of Silicon Valley and tech. There's a lot of that. They're plugging into a regulatory environment, which maybe in and of itself could be kind of primitive, right? And we're not seeing necessarily good results in there, you know, particularly Uber, lots of issues with their workforce, lots of issues with journalists, a lot of issues with women's safety that was sort of pushed to the side. I'm not putting you to answer for Travis, but how do we balance some of that move fast, break things, primitive ethos in the meaning of the word, not the meaning of the book, to make sure we don't lean into toxic behaviors, if there's a way to balance that. Absolutely. Uh, It's a huge point. And for primitives to really reach their potential and do it in a way that doesn't go off the rails, that doesn't get them in jail, that doesn't make them despise figures. They need, conversely, to tap into a little bit of that civilized ethos, right? That's point number one. Point number two, I deliberately put people in the book that have taken it too far. Hmm. Uh, You mentioned Travis. Steve Jobs, one could argue, although obviously brilliant and changed our world forever, usually in a good way, he was not known to be a nice guy, right? I mentioned Elizabeth Holmes, who's in the biotech space. She was on the cover of every magazine 
Uh, there was one problem. She wasn't telling the truth. Yeah. So we can, we can also get into how Adam and we work with by, you know, putting yeah. the cards on the table, as I mentioned, the book was actually a former client, but it was pushing it too far. What those uber primitives need is a civilizing force to kind of counter some of their instinctive and impulsive moves. And it takes a primitive who is evolved and who is mature to realize where their shortcomings are and realize how people can actually get the most out of them, sometimes by bringing them in line. The final point, and this is why, although I've received feedback that, well, the president of the United States sounds like a primitive. And my answer to that is yes and no. And I'm not a fan of President Trump. I did meet him and work with him directly one-on-one -on, -one on a video project that I can tell you sometime over a coffee or a beer. But <laughs> in, in my book of the roaming, obviously he's completely relentless. He doesn't lose sight of the big picture. He's very agnostic from stakes to casinos to real estate development, to reality TV, et cetera, et cetera. But there's one very, two very big points that he is not. And I think that's what can allow evolved, refined primitives tower over crude primitives that don't get checks in all the boxes. First of all, Trump might be insecure. We all know he's insecure, but he doesn't embrace it. He doesn't, from a humble or modest perspective, hug it and say, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or I have doubts. In the research that we've done, those people that have the imposter syndrome, that think they're fooling people, they're actually the ones that are most effective and productive. It's people who have the opposite of the imposter syndrome, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which affects most people, that they think they're actually more competent than they are. It's why when they do research and ask, are you above average driver? 90% of Americans say they're above average. Yeah. Statistically impossible, right? So in terms of bringing these primitives in a place that we can follow them and they can lead us and we can tap in the best rather than the worst, I think finding those people that embrace and acknowledge that insecurity rather than deny it, and also to fast forward those people who are gallant. And the president of the United States is not gallant. He does not care about the other. True primitives care about the other. And I think you see that in a lot of big names out there. But I, I one whom I've mentioned to you before, Kirk McDonald, happens to be one of the most impressive business leaders that I've worked with. He is now running Xander, their ad tech division. You know, we devote a lot of time to him saying he's both an imposter, one of the top 25 people at AT&T. He's yeah. like, well, should I really be here? Da, da, da. It's his jet fuel. He proves himself each and every day. And part of how he proves himself is also to help other people who were the underdog that he once was at CCNY that didn't have money to pay for tuition. He had to drop out of school. And he's now one of the top 25 people at AT&T. So for me, that's the primitive energy at its best. I like that you started to bring up this idea of having doubts and insecurities. As I mentioned before we really started talking, there's a lot of, as I was going through the book, there's a lot of vulnerability in the book. There's a lot of personal stories about things you experienced with your dad, wanting to live up to his ideas and, and maybe your ideas of what manhood is and how you should be presenting yourself to the world. Things that you don't 
typically find in these types of books? Like, what made you feel comfortable sharing those stories and weaving them into the the overall narrative of Primitive? I've read too many business books that felt anonymous. They felt faceless. They felt that they could have been written by anyone at any time. I wanted to not just pay homage to my father, but also to share his experiences along the spectrum. My dad said to me, son, don't be overeducated and underemployed. And he felt that working in a big corporation would be a meritocracy for me, that all I had to do was play by the rules and I would skyrocket to the top and be CEO one day. Well, after being raised in a very primitive environment on Venice Beach in California in the 1960s and 70s, I was eager for that civilized, conventional, trodden path that others had taken to the top. But I took that path and I found myself in a cubicle like a bird with its wings clipped off. And so part of the motivation of showing my own vulnerability and talking, yes, about things like depression and yes, talking about antidepressants and yes, how CrossFit couldn't even cure that. What cured it is actually tapping into what I really want to do. And too many people are going through the day, going through the motions and not being able to really get at their core of what they want to do. And they don't wave that magic wand and say, what did I want to do when I was 11 years old? Now, a lot of it might be, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be an NBA player, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't always work out. But one of the things that I always wanted to do that I never did, and I'm sharing this, I've never shared it in the public domain. I called in to talk radio shows during the 1970s as a little kid. I got off on that. Now, I've been preparing clients to do that over the years as a PR guy. But at 56, it's never too late. <laughs> and conversely, it's never too young to get in touch with that 11 and 12-year-old inside of everyone and just say, life is short and I'm going to go for it. Yeah. And this is not in the book. There's actually a story that was published, likely maybe in anticipation of, of the book, um, January of this year. There's an article in Business Insider that talks about, you know, you lost $25 million, you know, which you know, was, was due to kind of sticking to your guns in terms of loyalty to a friend. And I remember reading this story and it really touched me. And in the sense that your sense of values and, and where they are framed in your life is very important, at least to the outsider coming in. It's, it's something that ran through that article. It runs through this book. So tell me a little bit about that Business Insider article and you know, why you felt it was so important to stand by your friend at that moment, even though there was a financial loss to yourself? The time was in March of 2000. And a friend of mine had started a company that out of nowhere became a huge IPO phenomenon that had occurred six months before. I was fortunate enough to be part of an initial team that was uh, involved in the establishment of the company. I had stock. I was supposed to hold on to the stock for six months. Right before the six, a month before the six month mark came, my friend said, look, I'm going to ask you not to sell the stock. 
and at the time I had a uh, young wife uh, who was pregnant with our second child. I had no savings to speak of, and I had started a year and a half before my own business. I called up my accountant and he said, this is a no brainer. You are going to tell your friend that you are not like the other people. You have nothing to fall back on. You will be selling the stock, but you're going to be giving a couple million dollars to his favorite charity. My accountant was absolutely sure in an old fashioned New York accent, the kind they don't make anymore, but you remember it, Phil, growing up yeah, in Brooklyn. Of course. <laughs> he said, that is the right financial decision. From an ethical point of view, he said, I don't know. It's your call. He's your friend. So, of course, I slept on it and I decided to go with the friend. And a lot of people have ridiculed me about that. Believe me, I'd like to have some of those tens of millions back right now um, for a lot of reasons, not just for my family, but to help others. And especially when we see unemployment skyrocketing, et cetera. But at the time, it was the right decision. And in retrospect, it was the right decision. And I'll point to a quote in the book that talks about loyalty. And it comes from a professor of psychology who was trained at Harvard, but for some reason, she didn't jive well with the civilized tenure track at Harvard, and they didn't even grant her a PhD. And her name is Judith Rich Harris, and she wrote a book called The Nurture Assumption, and I found it in an obit. Yes, guys, sometimes you find great things in obits in the New York Times, and she wrote this book that, you know, it's not just about our environment. It's also about our DNA and how we're wired and da, da, da. And it's like the jungle. And she said, you know, the jungle may be bloody, but it's not devoid of love and loyalty. <laughs> and I think we see that in a lot of tough areas, right? We see it in the street. You know, the term ghetto was actually from Yiddish, yep. you know? Or saw ghetto, you see, you saw horrible things in the Holocaust, the people turning against each other. But you also saw love and loyalty between ethnic groups, between religious groups, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for me, the Danny story was one of doing the right thing is more important than the almighty dollar. And I love it. that's the bottom line. Perfect. You know, it's a beautiful thing, you know, and I, I am proud of it. There are people that give me shit for it and tell me I'm stupid and they would never have done it. There are other people that say kudos to you for doing it. There are other people that say, why do you even talk about it anymore? It's not relevant. It sounds a little bit patting yourself on the back. Well, so be it. It was a story I hadn't told in 20 years. Never. I thought it was time to tell it. And I'm glad it resonated with you. And, and you know what? I do it all over again because it's about the people and Danny gave me that opportunity. And I said, Danny, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't even be faced with this dilemma. Yeah. So there's only one way to do the right thing, and that's to follow your lead. And I'm here with your brother, and I'm following it. Yeah. We, we stand with our friends. We dance with the one that brought you to take another, Absolutely. another Don Draper one. I want to get us to the last two segments of the show, which are off the dome and the drop, since I want to make sure I get you out on time. And- well, Guess what? Because I sometimes suffer from a few learning issues, my two of my kids went to LD schools. That's learning differences. I glanced at my calendar and realized I actually have extra time. I misread. Okay. 
a certain <laughs> slot in my calendar. Okay, well then we're good on time, so we, <laughs> we, we don't have to rush through these off the dome. But there's only three of them because, yeah. and and they're connected to the book. But in the book, you mentioned all these different experiences that you've had playing different sports. You wanted to play football, and you know when you were going to go to college, all this different stuff. And so, if you can be a professional athlete in any sport, what would that sport be? Uh, I have to pick football. Okay. Just too much in my blood. It reminds me to my high school coach. I'll give a plug, Beverly Hills High School. Now, that was a dangerous thing when you're going to a school of like 2,800 kids and Beverly Hills and you go into other areas and they don't live in Beverly Hills and they don't want to lose to Beverly Hills. So they give it all they have. But over the years, it's been a great football program. In fact, shout out to a former coach there, Coach Pacinger, and his son, Spencer Pacinger, was a linebacker a couple of years ago for several years for the New York Giants. Okay. One thing about football is it teaches you that life is a contact sport. sport. And sometimes you have to, in the words of a defensive coordinator who I played under, seek the contact seek the contact. And I think a lot of times in today's world where we're often walking on eggshells, sometimes for very good reasons, right? There were there were liberties taken in the past that were not right, that were unfair. And I'm not even talking about the horrible discrimination and other wrongs that have not totally been righted, but are going in that direction, let's say, right? But there's another current that we've lost our brashness We've lost our boldness. People are so frightened. Am I going to say something that's going to irritate someone? Or is my boss going to look at me the wrong way? Or et cetera, et cetera. So I think to answer your question, definitely football. I like to knock heads. Okay. Uh, Dan, we talked about earlier, like to knock heads. And he thought that the best way to get wonderful product and great ideas is to disagree. Not always to shake our head in agreement, but to actually wrestle with ideas and, you know, Toss them around the room and see who wins. Perfect. Perfect. In the book, you interviewed a lot of people. You talked to a lot of people. The next question, who's the one person that you would love to interview that you haven't gotten a chance to? And it doesn't have to be about the book, just could be anybody. I wanted to interview Ariana. I wasn't able to get to her. I do reference Ariana Huffington. Mm -hmm. I think her immigrant story from Greece, the fact that she was, you know, took a more conventional course was married, had a kid, and then in middle age, decided to start blogging before anyone knew it was blogging, right? I've had the good fortune to meet her on two or three occasions in business settings. And I can tell you when she walks in the room, there's automatic presence, there's automatic respect, and she really listens and she really gets inside not just the mind, but the heart and soul of the people that she works with and is able to take them to the next level. So she's truly messianic. And I do talk about a few anecdotes that I've had with her, but I really would have liked to have been able to sit down with her and learn more about what makes her tick and also ask her to throw darts at my roaming premise, right? I I frankly think she gets checks in all the boxes but maybe I'm wrong. And maybe there's another box that hasn't been created that she would add on to my acronym. Okay. You mentioned sailing in the book. There's a, a part where you talk about leaving school with your dad. I think you were seven or eight, maybe a little older. Third grade. Yeah. And he, and he takes you 
on this kind of what I imagine is kind of like a schooner or something. <laughs> like I know nothing about boats. Okay. So that's what I kind of pictured. Probably don't have the right language. But in all of that, I do know that in sailing, knots are very important. So what's the most essential knot that you had to learn at that seven, eight-year-old guy kind of taking this trip? Uh, I love this line of questioning. It was certainly the knot that he told me to tie. And I forget the exact name of it. It's been a long time. But essentially, it was the knot that I tied the dinghy to. Okay. If we lost the dinghy, if the rope wasn't tied properly and the dinghy floated to shore, we'd have no choice but to swim to shore. And sometimes we were anchored really far out. And uh, swimming to shore wasn't an option. So I think they have that expression of measure twice or measure three times and cut once. You got to keep, you know, you got to sh- make sure your knot is tied properly. And incidentally, for me, that gets back to the insecure chapter of so many of us are too damn confident. We walk around thinking it's all good. You know, sometimes it's not all good. <laughs> sometimes we're saying, uh, oh, did I do that right? Should I do it again? Should I double check? You bet you should. Awesome. Awesome. Now, I want to get us into the drop. And the drop is the final segment of the show. And basically, it's a recommendation to our listeners. can be anything. It's a intellectual morsel is what I've been, I think I write in the show notes. But do you have your drop ready or do you want me to go first? I think I have it ready. Go for it. What's your drop? It's a book called The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. Definitely has a Buddhist inflection. I'm Jewish. I'm proud of that. And he actually was raised Jewish, now Buddhist. It's his own decision, of course. There are a lot of hard-driving people out there, Phil. I was fortunate to get a great agent, assemble a terrific team, and get a wonderful publisher in Hachette. You've been surrounded by overachievers your whole life. I have too. Uh, We're friends with them. We're related to them. We might actually be them ourselves, right? It makes it harder sometimes to surrender, to accept, to have faith, to, in the words of a 12-step program, let go and let God. And we're human beings, not human doings, as a rabbi once told me. And I think especially in this age of being hyper-connected, having devices up the wazoo, having every podcast, webcast, Zoom call, it's ebook under the sun, to be able to put it all aside and slow it down and focus on our breath and just let good things happen and have faith. My wife reminds me, have faith and have fun. And I think that's age-old advice but we often forget it. And this surrender experiment that I read right after I put my book down and finished it and sent it off was a great reminder of just the fact that great things will happen and aligning your interest with the universe interest. It doesn't mean chilling out and not doing anything mm-hmm. and giving up and just you know meditating and saying, um, all day long. It means, yeah, you got to go out and kick some butt, but you also have to realize there are higher powers at work, whether you call it God, whether you call it a force, whether you call it the flow, whether you call it whatever, it ain't just all about you. And being open to that energy, I feel is actually very primal and has been around for tens of thousands of years. 
And sometimes we also have that beaten out of us in school. And sometimes even by religious people that, you know, they walk the walk, but it's like, I can only speak for, you know, on the Jewish faith that a lot of times people are more concerned about being kosher and separating milk from me than they are about believing in God and that God can help us. And that we sometimes we got to just pray. Yeah. Sometimes you can't let the ritual get in the way of the spiritual, so they say. Yeah, beautifully put, or as a rabbi, he goes, with all due respect to the kosher police, it's a lot more than that in our faith and in everyone's faith, right? So I I inspired when I was in Iceland and Lisbon, I went into some churches and I found the most amazing energy just go through me. And so that's agnostic, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. My drop was actually on the music side of things. Fiona Apple released her latest work about, I guess, two weeks now, maybe a week. It might be longer by the time this actually airs. And it's called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And it's a messy piece of work in the sense that it's not something that you throw on for easy listening. It's something that you want to go deep with. It took me like the first time I listened to it, I was like, okay, it's Fiona Apple. So it has a baseline of being good because she's a great musician and songwriter and artist, piano player, all of those things. And then as I listened to it in bits and pieces and started to break it apart, it really started to come alive to me after like a week to 10 days at this point where I really get it. And I think it's something that everybody's going to have their own personal experience with it. Some people's personal experience might be they don't like it at all. Because it's just, it's not easy listening, but I think it's worthwhile listening. And so I think it's a great record. Fiona Apple is called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And that's my drop for this episode. So brother, this has been great. I loved talking to you. We went through a lot and there's so much more that we could have touched on. The book is a success. So congratulations on that. And thanks for being on The Deep Dive. Thank you so much, Phil. Honor to be with you, really. You do your homework and great line of questioning. And I'm going to be a loyal listener coming over the next several weeks and months. Awesome. It's been great to have Marco Greenberg join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.